Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. So we've been talking all month about giving and being generous, being generous with our love, loving people that are hard to love. We talked last week about being generous in forgiveness and giving, giving and forgiving. And I got a chance to practice just a couple weeks ago. This, was, this is fresh. Just a couple weeks ago, I was like, you know, I'm going to practice this generosity thing. And so we're we're at in uh, the, the drive-through line at McDonald's. It's just me and my kids, just my two little kids. Addie, my six-year-old, is up here, and Elias, and they're in the back, and I'm driving. Uh, we go through the drive-through. We get some French fries, just two small fries, with a little snack. We're going through, and I see, look behind me in the rearview mirror, and there's there's a, probably a twenty-something guy, really skinny guy. He's driving a kind of a beat-up old little car. It's like a tan car, which I didn't know they made tan cars like. If he got it from communist Russia or something, but he's got this, he's got this beat up old tan car and he's a skinny guy by himself. And I realized like, I need to, my kids need to know how humble I am and how godly I am. So I, I said, kids, your dad's about to do something very humble and godly, okay? Just you need to understand this about your dad and trying to pass this on to you. We're gonna buy the meal of the guy behind us, whatever he orders, we're gonna buy it for him. So we get up to the thing and roll down the window and I, I, uh, the lady's like, you know, that'll be $2 and whatever for your fries. And I said, you know, we're actually going to uh, pay for the meal behind us. What's, what is that amount? What's the guy behind me? And she is like, oh, my goodness. That is so generous. She leans in the window and to my kids. She's like, your dad is so godly and Christ-like <laughs> and generous. And she didn't use those words, but it's kind of what the, she was saying, you know, in her own words. And... And my kids are like, yes, we know. He just told us. <laughs> and, and, and so she's typing this up. You're so great. And she gives me the amount. This was the amount. She's like, it'll be $53.85. <laughs> and I'm like, I look behind me. And I'm like expecting 11 of his friends to pop up from under the hood. Like, hey. I'm like, did he just buy 55% of this franchise? He's just a stock owner now in McDonald's? I was like, forget that guy. So... <laughs> I'm not buying his Wagyu triple McDouble duck confit lobster McBisque, whatever. So I wanted to say, but instead I said, sure, go ahead. That sounds awesome. And uh, now I drive a tan car. So I had to sell my car. <laughs> But going to McDonald's is great in a tan car. People buy things for you. So it's hard. You know, I wish I could tell you as a Christian, as a pastor, it's like, it, I love being, it's hard. Like, you're like, ugh, sometimes sacrificial love is hard. You know, being generous is hard. And that's, that's why it's, it's the mark of a Christian. It's, it's it, the mark of a follower of Jesus is our default mode is to be, radically generous with people. And the passages we've been looking at over the last three weeks have been really the same couple verses. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go to the verses that precede those passages just right before where we were the last few weeks. So this is it, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, and then 
27 is where we were the last several weeks, but we're going to go back and get the whole context for why we are so generous and what we, what our life should look like. So verse 20 in Luke 6, looking at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are, who you, who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that, na- for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So what Jesus is doing, what any commentary you're going to read on this, what, what he is doing is he's basically telling you in the world, okay, in the world, there are two kingdoms that simultaneously exist, and they are completely perpendicular from each other. They're not even, they're not even in the same ballpark. I mean, they're inverted of each other. And so even if you're not a Christian here today, if you're spiritually undecided, this is just what Jesus is saying. There's these two kingdoms, and they coexist, and one of them is the, war, the kingdom of the world, and the other one is the kingdom of of heaven. It's one of the most talked about things in Jesus' ministry was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of this world, he describes it, it's the one, it's the second half, it's got all the woe, it's got all the, 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 the pity and the, and the remorse to it. But it's strange because it describes things that you and I would, would say are hashtag blessed. Like people who have these things, we would say they're the blessed ones, the ones that are rich, the ones that are well-fed, the ones that laugh, the ones whom everyone speaks well of. And he breaks down these four categories, and I kind of sum them up for you. The first one is power. You know, that's kind of what wealth is, right? Power, you can have access to influence. The other one is comfort. That's well-fed, right? You're comfortable. The other one is when, when um, you laugh. This is kind of gloating. It's, it's success. You've arrived. You're successful. And then the last one is, is recognition. And these are authorities. These are leaders. These are masters when it comes to decision-making for people who are citizens of the world's kingdom. Those are the factors that people weigh when they're making decisions. Will this uh, increase my influence? Will this increase my access to power? Will it increase my comfort, my success? That's, these are the authorities that have a say in people's decisions who live in the kingdom of this world. And uh, these particular um, things, if, you, if you're driven, if you're controlled by these variables or one of them more than others, some of you might be more on the recognition side or the power side, whatever it is, but it, for those that live driven or controlled by those things, Jesus uses this kind of uh, antiquated word. It's, it's the word woe, which it, it doesn't mean like cursed. He's not, he's not resentful. He's not angry at you. He's not, he's not like um, petty about this and, and offended. He's just grieving. This, this woe is this deep remorse and regret and sadness. It's, it's a grief is what it is. So he's looking down at these people who are driven by and make decisions by those categories 
and he's grieved. He's, his heart is broken over these things. Woe is a deep, deep grief. Why? Well, uh, to unpack this, I'm going to go through an analogy. I've used this before, but it, it is so helpful in describing the situation here. So this person, Enrique Ibsen, he was a Norwegian playwright. No one probably cares or knows who that guy is. But he wrote a lot of plays, and he wrote some essays, and he talked about this particular uh, idea, and it's this, this idea of a lie that everybody believes. Everybody wakes up from the day they're born believing this lie. And the lie is this. The lie is that the thing or the object that arouses or, or um, uh, stirs up my desire is the thing that will satisfy it. So, the, so whatever you would put in this blank, if you would fill it in for yourself in your mind, my life will be complete when I have blank. My life will only be complete if I can achieve blank or have this. Whatever you would put in that blank, that's what arouses your, your desire and it, it stirs up your like, idea of like, this will satisfy me, right? And the lie is, is that the thing that does that will actually be the thing that satisfies that desire. Now, the most painful experience that Enrique would say in a person's life, the, the most, the darkest hour of a person's life would be the moment they lose that lie. And he uses some interesting words there when he describes it, losing the lie. What does it mean to lose the lie? And this is how he describes it. He describes it as a person who's driven, maybe, maybe long stretches of their life, their whole life, to achieve this thing or attain this object, and they finally get it. They, they arrive at that at that tier of leadership, they achieve that net worth, they get that level of comfort and success and recognition that they've been looking for their whole life, they finally get it. And they realize it actually doesn't. This was a lie. And they go through the grief cycle, and if you know the grief cycle, it starts with shock, like they're just, they're shocked by it. And then they go into denial. And they're like, well, surely, maybe it's I don't have enough comfort. I don't have enough people that know me. I don't have enough success in my career. I don't have enough power, enough wealth. So I got to get more. So they keep, they're back driven again to achieve more or acquire more because they're in denial. They can't believe that it doesn't satisfy. And then they get to this place where they're angry. That's the next part of the grief cycle. They're frustrated with people. They're short with their kids. They're short with their spouse. They're just angry all the time. There's this undercurrent of anger in their life. They don't even know why. And then, and then there's the depression, and there's a sadness, and that's the darkest place. And if you've read about people and famous people get to that place where they've got it all. I think of the end of uh, ESPN's documentary series, 30 for 30, where Dennis Rodman's being interviewed, and the very end of that episode, it ends with, it ends with him alone in a theater, and he says, I go up to famous people all the time, and I go up to him and I get real close to him, and I just, I just say, I just ask him, we should be happy, right? And then he starts to just cry, and the, the documentary just ends. And, and that's, that's losing the lie. It's the darkest hour of a person's life. But what Jesus says is the highest pity, the most pitiable place a person could be at is before then. It's when they believe the lie, 
when they're being driven by those things, trying to attain those things, trying to acquire those things in their life. That's, that's the most pitiable. They don't even realize at the end of that road, it's just nothing. What they're driven by, power, success, comfort, those things, it's a dead end. And the most pitiable place you can be in your life is when you don't realize it. You're driven by those things. So what is the opposite of that? Well, Jesus describes it. What's the blessed? What actually truly is the hashtag blessed life? What does it actually look like? And it's stuff that none of us would, would call blessed. I mean, some of you walked in today describing, you would describe your life in this situation. There's weeping now. There's poverty now. There's hunger now. There's rejection and exclusion and insults now. You, would, you wouldn't have, you didn't wake up feeling blessed. Well, and, and the reason is this. It's not because those things in of themselves are, are blessings. In fact, you gotta be careful how you read this first, first chunk of scripture. You, it's not that you should be driven by those things. It's not like you trade power and be driven by weakness, trade comfort and be driven by suffering. You should not pursue suffering for suffering's sake any more than you should pursue comfort for comfort's sake. That, don't, don't misread this. That's not what it's saying. We all know people who are suffering and even scripturally would say they're really not, they're not blessed just because they're suffering. Um, they're, even if you run away, I know people who do this. They run from power or comfort because they're like afraid of it and they run towards suffering. Their identity is even found in suffering. They don't, they don't feel like themselves unless they're suffering and we watch them walk into toxic and difficult things that they shouldn't be throwing themselves into because they somehow feel like they, they can't have nice things or be comfortable. Um, you, you shouldn't be doing that. Is, that's being controlled by those things of power and comfort in a different way. You're actually controlled by them. They're making you run toward other things that are just not helpful or not healthy. But this is what should control and drive a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And if you read the Bible too fast, if you read this you'll too, too fast, you'll miss it. And it's right there in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. And this is it. This is what drives, this is the only thing that drives a person in the kingdom of heaven. Ready for this? Because what's our why? Our why is this, the son of man. As a term that Jesus used to refer to himself all the time, he's saying, you are driven, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are driven by and controlled by and led by, and you make decisions based on the authority of Jesus alone, the king of that kingdom. You know, when people become a Christian, uh, they often think of it like this. This is how they think of it when they, um, when they think about becoming a Christian. Uh, imagine for a minute that in your, in your heart there is a boardroom and imagine a big mahogany wood table in the middle of it. You can smell the mahogany, you know. I don't know what mahogany smells like. So whatever you think it smells like, that's what it's gonna smell like today. And, and imagine this big table and in the middle of that table gets put a decision. Every decision in your day, big, medium, and small, all of the decisions get put in the middle of that table. And what happens is you've got a bunch of executives, a bunch of vice presidents that debate how that decision should get made. You've got your vice president of your hobby self. You've got your vice president of your fitness self. You've got your vice president of your work life and your work self. You've got your vice president of your relationships life. 
And you've got all these VPs around the table and they all argue and give advice as to what you should do from the position of you know, their authority with the department that they're in. And they debate what you should do. And that many people think becoming a Christian is just adding a vice president of religion to the boardroom. And his name is Jesus. And now he's in the mix. He's debating with all the other VPs. And in many cases, that's what people feel or think about becoming a Christian is like. And actually, it is firing every single executive around that boardroom. There's no one in there. You fire yourself and Jesus is the only one in the room and he's the CEO and you've already said yes to him without even hearing yet what he's gonna tell you to do because he's in charge. That's what becoming a Christian is. Jesus is the only voice, he's the only leader in your life and he's the only driver and authority in every decision that comes your way. That's big. How do you get to that level of surrender? How, how do you just, how does someone give up these things like power and comfort and success and recognition? I mean, if not all of those are struggles, some of them gotta be for you, maybe at least one of them. How do you, how do you get to that place where you totally surrender to Jesus as the authority, as the CEO of your life? How do you get to that place? Well, the, the answer to that question is actually taking a good hard look at what drives Jesus. When God opens your eyes to what drives Jesus truly and you see him for what he is, it's impossible to not let go of your life. And the scripture gives us a really unique window and a, and a unique peek into what, Je what drives Jesus. The night before he's about to be crucified, Jesus is going to uh, the Mount of Olives. He's going to go pray. And he brings his disciples with him. And he gives them one job. Like they have one job to do. And it's just pray. Just, just pray. Jesus is about to go and die on a cross. He just washed their feet. The least they could do. Just pray. And Jesus goes off to pray by himself. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's about to be crucified. And in that moment, this is what we read in Luke chapter 22. We read that uh, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw away, stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We are getting a look at the decision that Jesus has to make in the boardroom of his own heart. And the decision is this. And it's not, do you notice, he says this cup. This is so important. He doesn't say that cup over there or some future cup. He's talking about this cup, which any commentary will tell you what's happening in that moment in Jesus's boardroom, in his, in his experience right there, God the Father is pulling back the curtain and he is showing Jesus something in a powerful and more visceral way than ever. He is looking at this cup and what's in this cup? Well, this is the cup of God's wrath for all the sin in your life, all of it. A lifetime of your sin, 
He is showing Jesus in that moment what it looks like to take on the fair and reasonable punishment, the just punishment for all of that sin against a perfect and holy God. And that cup is looking right at Jesus and Jesus is looking right at it. He's seeing it. Maybe for the first time in the most visceral way, he's seeing the wrath of God in this cup. He's looking right at it. And then he's looking over at you and me, which represented by the disciples, unconscious, asleep, like completely useless and unhelpful. In fact, having give, been given a command to pray, the disciples already broke the command. That's us. We've broken the only command. We've broken all the commands. We are asleep and unhelpful. We're unconscious. And then Jesus sees us over there. And he sees you. And he sees me. And then he looks back at this cup of wrath. And this cup of wrath, it is... It is the sum total of the wrath of God for all the sins in the world, including yours. And, and just to give you an idea of just how horrible that is, you talk about being rejected. It is arriving at the end of your life and crossing over into the next life and being eyeball to eyeball with God and realizing he's real. And, and, and there's a moral standard and, and you don't hit it. Even the little bit of good things you did, you don't hit perfection, you don't hit holiness, and you realize it, and the lights come on, and now you have to deal with that. And he says, get away from me, I don't know you, you don't hit the standard, and you drift off into the abyss as your loved ones hold their hands out reaching for you, and it's done, and it's over, and there's no second chances for all eternity. Whatever that feels like, whatever the pain of that is, the fullness of that, the just wrath of that, that's in the cup. And Jesus is looking at that cup. And he's looking at you. And what is he driven by? Well, it's certainly not power. It's certainly not comfort. It's certainly not success. And it's certainly not inclusion and recognition. And he drinks it. What drives him? His love for you. His love for you. He didn't come to condemn you into this world. He came to save you. He says it. That's why he came. He came because he loves you. For God so loved. That's what drives him. And he and the Father are one. They're on the same page. That's why Jesus says, not my will, yours be done, because we're on the same page. He loves you. That's why he picks it. That's what drives Jesus. And when you see that, you can trust him. And when you see that, and when God opens your eyes to that, there is blessing available to you, not when you die alone, not when you die exclusively. There's blessing available to you right now. This whole passage is about blessedness while you're poor, blessedness while you're hungry, blessedness while you weep. How can you be blessed and weep at the same time? The answer is right here in verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. You can rejoice in that day of weeping, in that day of poverty, in that day of hunger. Why? Because your reward is in heaven. You know what that is? If your faith is in Jesus, if you trust him, then there's a name written in heaven, a spot reserved, and it's yours. And nothing that you go through can take that away. 
Nothing deletes that. Nothing undoes that. Even your own sin, even whatever you're grieving about, whatever you're hungry for, nothing, no current circumstances erases the fact that your name is in heaven. And the best part about heaven, it's not the gold streets. It's not the comforts and the luxury. It's not the places you're going to stay and the things you're going to see. It's Jesus. He's the best part about heaven. If heaven was full of luxuries and gold and all kinds of nice stuff and Jesus wasn't there, you know what that'd be called? That place would be called hell. Jesus is the best part about heaven. And here's this wild. You don't have to wait until you get there to have him come down right now in your heart, in the middle of your weeping. Trust me, you're gonna leave here today and you might still be weeping. Whatever you're going through, there still might be hunger when you leave here today. There might even be suffering. There might be exclusion where you're rejected. You're gonna leave here today. Those things will not change. But what will change is there is a blessing. There's a blessing that comes in and fills that that void, that, that, that lie that you lost in, in trying to pursue one of these things and then thinking that it would satisfy you. Jesus comes into that place and he's the best part about heaven. And you can have him today, right now. You can walk through anything. You can walk through any kind of suffering because Jesus is with you in it. You know, I, I know people and I, I, I've been there. I obviously shared my imperfection with you about this. When it comes to giving to the poor, doing something generous, if you've ever looked at the poor and you've thought, you know, they should pick themselves up by their bootstraps. You walk past a homeless person, you say, you should, there's free public libraries on every corner of every block. You should go and do something. You gotta do something to earn it. Let me just say this. If you have that reaction to the poor around you, it's probably because you have that belief about your relationship with God. That he's up there saying the same thing, that you, you gotta pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You, you, you gotta do something. You can't just get free grace. You can't just get unlimited free grace. You gotta do something. And what Jesus is telling us today is we're dead, we're asleep. We've been given one job and we broke it. We've been given one commandment, we broke it and we're unconscious, unable to wake up. And it's Jesus simply looking at you, motivated, driven by a love for you, just because of who you are, as you are, that he drinks the cup, he suffers, he dies, gives his life to you. And you didn't know earn it. You didn't do anything for it. You know, when you came in today, you were given a name. You were given the name of someone. This is the hard copy of a digital copy we, we have. We have them on a spreadsheet. We're going to be praying as a staff and as a church over the next two years. But we gave you back the hard copy today. And this is the name of a person that someone in this church, someone in this church loves and they have not heard their name called by Jesus yet. They have not heard it. There's something blocking their view of Jesus' love for them. They don't know Jesus yet. They don't know his love. 
And so here's what I'm asking. If this is, if this is not your church home, this isn't your church, or, um, and you, you just want to give it to an usher on your way out, that's okay. We'll find a good home for it. But if this is your church home, I want you to know you have a job to do. You've been assigned. It wasn't an accent. It wasn't like just happenstance. You got the name. And you don't know them, but God knows exactly who they are. He knows where they are right now. And you know God. And you can talk to God about them. So I'm asking you to put this somewhere where you will see it regularly. Maybe on your way out the door, by your garage. Maybe it's in a mirror. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, in your car somewhere but at work. But when you see it, I'm just asking you just for a moment. It doesn't need to be a long prayer. Jesus says, don't go babbling on like, like the pagans do. You don't need long prayers. Jesus can do a lot of work in a very short amount of time. But pray for this person. Pray for them that they would hear their name called by Jesus. And then if you are somebody who does not know Jesus, you're open about it. You're like, I'm spiritually undecided. I haven't made up my mind about this. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm gonna ask you to turn it around and I want you to write your name on it. When you go home, I want you to write your name on it. I want, to put, I want you to put somewhere where you'll see it regularly. And every time you say it, see it, I want you to pray this to Jesus. I want you to ask him, Jesus, would you help me hear my name? Jesus, would you call my name? Would you help me to hear it? If you're out there, Jesus, would you call my name? And you pray that prayer. You keep asking it. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you'll hear him call your name. You will hear him say your name personally. And then you respond. And if you surrender your life and you fire all the vice presidents in your heart and you put Jesus in that boardroom, I'm telling you what your first job is. You know what your first job is? to spin that card around and you pray for that person who right now has not heard their name called. That's your first assignment. In a minute, we're gonna hear some stories of some people who heard their name called and I want you to hear their stories. I want you to celebrate with them. Then the video's gonna end and we're gonna baptize them here and I, you have my permission to make an unchristian amount of noise in this place today. And you can applaud and clap for each person and we're gonna celebrate God has called their name. So turn your attention to the screens behind me.